Well, brethren, we're grateful for the things God has given us at this Thanksgiving time. And, of course, this isn't just on Thanksgiving, but here we're a little bit later, and uh, certainly our minds are on that, as Mr. Lyons mentioned in his fine sermonette. We're grateful for what is being done. We're grateful for the power that God is giving us in this work. We're not growing as fast as we would like, but we are growing nevertheless, as a lot of you know. And we are starting on a new station uh, just uh, actually pretty shortly. I guess it would be December the 6th, a week from Sunday, I think that would be, over in Great Britain, and a satellite. And I guess that was mentioned last time, wasn't it? I'm not sure if it ever mentioned or not, but we're going on that. And Rod King says it's more powerful than the gospel channel, which we're on. So it should about double the responses we're getting from the British Isles, and we're thankful for that. Also, one of our members and very dedicated man in Oklahoma City is helping pay for part of that and helping pay for part of a station in Oklahoma City. So we're going on a new station in Oklahoma City as well, January the 3rd. So that will be, I guess, about five weeks from tomorrow as well. So we are moving ahead and grateful for what God is doing. But we are in a very chaotic and confused age. And when you watch the television, as my wife and I often do, uh, especially BBC gives the whole world, many of the Americans say, so just give American political news and sports stars and what happened to uh, Tiger, uh, why, did he, <laughs> why did he hit the you know, post and all these other things that are happening like that. But they don't give the world news. But when you get BBC, you get what's going on all through sometimes Central America and Asia and parts of Africa. And it really is just awful. And how people are slaughtering one another, robbing, raping, murdering, torturing. And it just goes on and on and on. And it makes you realize the tremendous need for God's kingdom. And yet, of course, we are here in a very blessed way. And we're grateful for that. I want to read something that I tore out of the paper the other day, and Mr. Ames had noticed it too, so I, I beseeched him not to read it ahead of me because he, he reads the same kind of stuff I do and has the same interests, of course, but it was in the Charlotte Observer here uh, the day before yesterday, and it's entitled, A Thanksgiving to Our Beneficent Father. This is a proclamation from President Abraham Lincoln and I'm not going to read it all. I'll read about half of it. I don't want to take all the time. But he said, The year has, is drawing toward a close, has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties, which are so constantly enjoyed uh, that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added, which are of an extraordinary nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence of Almighty God. Here's a guy that didn't have much of formal schooling at all. By the way, when you hear all these big words and adjectives and, and so on, he educated himself. He drove himself to learn, and he did learn, and gave some of the greatest speeches in modern human history. He winds up the speech. He says that it seemed to me fit and proper that they should solemnly and reverently acknowledge as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people, uh, that is, the blessings he's been describing. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens of every part of the United States to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwells in the heavens. 
And I recommended them that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged and fervently implore the imposition of the almighty hand to heal the wounds of the nation and restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purpose to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. Wow. He wrote a magnificent speech, and you can see all the wonderful flowing, the flowing, and of course he had long sentences, which our people today don't use. They want, they, most Americans have a reader's digest mentality, and they don't know how to read long sentences. And if you go more than five or ten minutes on television without breaking it up with an ad or something, they get disinterested because they have a short attention span. But back there, people were readers. They had a longer attention span. And President Lincoln was part of that generation, although most of them were not anywhere near as well educated as he was because he drove himself to read hour by hour by the fireplace. He would educate himself in that way, reading books he would borrow and walk miles to borrow and reading them by the light of the fireplace. We today have so many blessings, brethren, in our nation even yet that God gave us because of Abraham's obedience, and we should be very, very thankful Yet we do not acknowledge or worship our Creator in our nation at all the way we should. So what is the most important thing we should be doing of all when you think about it? What's the most important instruction, most important commandment which our Creator sets forth? We need to think about it and we need to understand what is the most important single commandment of God. Turn back to Matthew chapter 22 if you would. Matthew, in your New Testament, of course, and chapter 22, and here we'll begin to get into this. I thought it would be helpful to have a two-part series, and I will have another part, as you'll see on the last part of this, this uh, subject here. A couple of weeks from today, I want to just cover what are the most important things from God's point of view in a certain way, and hope it will be very helpful to you. Here the Pharisees were challenging Jesus in various ways and discussing this and that. And it says here, one of them, a lawyer, this is Matthew 22, verse 35, one of the Pharisees or Sadducees, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment? What is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the eternal your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the first and great commandment. Now, brethren, in America today, when you talk to religious people even, and I've talked to, of course, thousands of them over a period of time, even outsiders when I'm sitting with someone on the airplane or the restaurant or this and that place, often religion will come up. And most of them, of course, don't have much of religion. Or if they do go to church, they'll just say, well, it's good to love your fellow man and go to church. Or they say, well, I try to keep the golden rule and love the Lord, and that's about all they know. And often they'll mention just the golden rule, and that's it. I try to keep the golden rule and be a good person. Well, is that the most important thing? It is very important, very important. But the most important thing is the first and great commandment. And the Son of God said so, because unless you keep the first commandment, 
as I'm going to explain to you today, and all that that implies, and I would like to have a 10-part series on the first commandment, but we don't, we don't want to be here for 10 weeks on the same thing, because I could go on and on about it. But unless you keep the first commandment, as you should, you cannot love your neighbor as yourself. These people say, well, I try to be good and keep the golden rule. Well, how do they interpret the golden rule? Who is my neighbor? Well, they may interpret their neighbor. I know I had a very nice aunt, and she was very kind to different ones of us in the family, but she didn't really have much interest in God in the sense of ever talking about it. It was so private, she never wanted to talk about it. And she wasn't out helping others in a broad way. I asked her about different things one time, and she just, it was, she would help others in the family. Well, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But your neighbor, as Jesus defined it in the parable of the Good Samaritan, is everyone you come across. And in a broad sense, every human being, but particularly those that are nearby that you could help and may feel more responsible for. Your neighbor is everyone around you. Your neighbor next door, whether or not they're in the church, the little child down the street, where you're driving your car, where you should go more slowly so you don't kill that child. And you take care of people around you in your neighborhood if you can. And this type of thing, your neighbors, everyone around you, every human being from every race, every creed, every age, every size and shape, every everything, every human being made in God's image is, in the broader sense, your neighbor. And you're to try to love your neighbor as yourself, but you cannot do that and won't do that. And people in the world certainly do not do that, no matter what their religion, unless they know God. You see, because otherwise you don't have that profound understanding that every human being is made in the image of God. And you're to love him not because he's a good guy. Do you love him? Well, he may not be your best buddy. He wouldn't be my best buddy too. I'll acknowledge that. But as a human being, I should love him and think there might be a time, if he's willing to talk, that I could help him or in the broader sense pray for him and be thankful to God, for instance, that in this church, and this church alone, only the church of God that's descended from Herbert W. Armstrong, we have the profound realization that those millions of people, perhaps six million Jews and many others who died in the Holocaust, and ever since then the Jewish people have been losing members of their synagogues, they say, where was God? Where was God during the Holocaust? And you know the famous letter, from the young soldier on the Russian front there in the Battle of Leningrad where there's just massive slaughter. Where was God? Well, God was there, but God is letting human beings have their own way for 6,000 years so they wouldn't gripe at Him. We wanted to try out this and try out that. He's letting them try it out. He's keeping hands off. But He is does have a wonderful plan where those people will come up again. And that terrorist will come up again later in a great white throne judgment and you and I can have the opportunity to help him someday. But that's part of part two I'm getting into already here a little bit. But you have to understand the first commandment to really come to know the true God and love God in order to do that. So you cannot obey the command to love your neighbor as yourself unless you really understand and start to obey the first commandment. You shall love what is love? When you hear it described throughout the Bible, and I won't turn to Scriptures for every single thing I say, because most of you know it, and I could cite so many Scriptures, we wouldn't have time to finish. 
But love, as Mr. Armstrong explained so many times, is outflowing concern. But certainly it can mean outflowing concern and warmth and affection, and certainly in a family sense, in a husband-wife sense, love and affection and all that goes into love. But you shall love the eternal God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You are to love God with your heart, which means your emotions and your passions. You're to love God with your heart, obviously. You're to love God with your soul, all your animal energy. You are to love God with your mind, to think about God, the great God who created and governs the universe. When you look up at the sky and you see the stars, the sun and the moon, and all the patterns and all the intricate laws that even the scientists admit that are there, and this Richard Dawkins who wrote this Smart Lake piece recently in the Wall Street Journal that I quoted one of mine. You may have not read it. Maybe it's not been printed yet. But anyway, I quoted him. He admits right in there that there are tremendous laws in the universe that are never broken. Laws all through the universe, natural laws, they're never broken. Oh, it just all happened. Is that so? What kind of a mind can believe that nonsense? That they're immutable laws. Everything operates perfectly. Huh? By accident? What is this? What is this great scientist? Men are so interested in their own vanity that they will not be willing to admit the Creator. But you could say Father. And that's one of the most beautiful terms in the whole world. And Mother is too. But when you connect up Father with God, then it is in that way the most beautiful. He is our Father, or if He is not our Father, if we're not converted, He's our Father in the sense of by virtue of being our Creator, but He can be our spiritual Father, and that becomes a tremendous understanding, and we can love Him. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will never let us down. We all let Him down, but to the degree we walk with Him, He will never, ever let us down. And the Bible is filled with assurances of that. So love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment because you see the magnificent creation and you come to understand through the Bible that God has given us this creation and His plan and that God then has created us, human beings. He's created the sons and daughters of men all over this earth in His own image. We have the kind of creative imagination that no other creatures have. And we can invent things. We can imagine things that don't exist. We can back off and laugh at ourselves. We have a type of humor and understanding and and, uh, so on that no other creature has remotely. We can compose tremendous complicated symphony arrangements. We can invent tremendous computers that can send and help guide missiles out into the space. And now they can go millions and millions of miles away as they did recently and landed just the other day back from this special mission. No other creature can remotely approach that. God has made us in His image. And you can be here to say, Father in heaven, you are God. You've given us all of this and have a more profound appreciation for God when you think of it in all those ways. So we need to know God in that way And we need to worship God and love Him with all our heart and strength and mind. It tells us back in James that God is the giver of every good and every perfect gift. That's, I'm jumping ahead here, but that's all right. That's back in James, the first chapter and verse 17. God is described as the giver of every good and every perfect gift. 
every beautiful sunrise, every beautiful sunset, every beautiful piece of music, every beautiful little child and the things we see in them, the beautiful things you see in your wife or your husband or loved ones, it's all there because God put it there and He has a lot more where that came from. And we need to really think of that. That's a reflection of God. He is the giver of every good and every perfect gift. So we certainly should love Him with all our heart and strength and mind. I want to give you five keys to help you obey the first commandment. Just five. We could give fifty or fifteen. But there's not time for that. The first key I want to, to, to help you understand is to really love God with all your being. You must come to know the true God. The Creator God, the God of the universe, the one who created the entire cosmos and all the tremendous beautiful things out there and who created the beautiful mountains in Switzerland and the vast Pacific Ocean and the beautiful islands out there and other things like that all over the earth. Every beautiful thing there is, God made and God is the creator of everything that is. So you've got to come to know God as the creator and the uh, giver, the one who is the giver of everything good, and the one who is the God of the Bible. Because unless you know the God of the Bible, all kinds of people have different concepts of God. So if you say, just love God with all your heart, the first question you ought to ask is, which God? Which God? That's so important. You know how that is. People get all mixed up, and they have Allah, or they have Buddha, you know, you go through the Orient, as I've done a number of times, and you see these great big fat, uh, I guess, Indian guys supposedly sitting there, and like Lord Buddha squatting there with a kind of a funny smile on his face, an inscrutable smile, and people are supposed to worship that. Well, who is that? Well, I don't need to go into that and put people down, but they worship various forms and ideas of God and idols that are representations of something that is not real and not true. The Bible reveals a God who has a purpose. And the Bible is the only religious book which describes in detail what was to happen and describes it in advance to ancient Babylon, to ancient Egypt, to Tyre, to Sidon, many other great cities, and described what was to happen to the Roman Empire and how it was to go down and its deadly womb was to be healed and how it was to have ten resurrections, but the first three were to be cut off by this little horn when we identify as the papacy and then the last seven the woman was to sit on a great fallen church sitting on the other resurrections of the Roman Empire and you know all the details of all those things since and the Bible is the one that describes how at the time of the end there was to be one great nation and another great company or commonwealth of nations and to them would be given all the wealthy parts of the earth and they would control the gates of their enemies and the only gates that have amounted to very much in the last several hundred years have been sea gates, not air gates, certainly not land gates. We hear about the Khyber Pass and other big places, but they really haven't amounted to a hill of beans in world affairs or commerce or commerce or war at all. The sea gates were the Panama Canal, the Suez Canal, the Bab el Mandeb at the southern entrance to the Red Sea, and the Strait of Hormuz and the uh, Palaka Straits. And as you know, all these other sea gates that we find described in the Bible and we've talked about, now all but two are gone. I went through about ten of them one time, I think, to describe them to you. All but two are gone. The only one still left 
and control of America and Britain, primarily Britain, are Gibraltar and the Falkland Islands. And I predict that within the next 10 years or less, at least one of them will be taken, probably both of them. You watch. Why do I know this? Well, because this book describes it in advance, and this book tells you overall what's going to happen in detail to our great national sea gates, to the wealth we have. That's why we're going down. That's why the dollar keeps falling. These Protestant preachers, they don't understand this. They think, well, we're just turning away, but they don't know the specifics at all. They just think mankind has turned away. They don't know why the specific things are definitely falling on us, the American and British descended peoples. They don't know. But the true God has a book. And you've got to come to know this book and really study, not just read it, but study it and know the God of the Bible. Then you'll know which God you're to love with all your heart and strength and mind. Turn with me now back to uh, Psalm 8, if you would, brethren. Psalm 8. And here is a wonderful chapter many of us are familiar with of course psalm 8 verse 1 the man after god's own heart king david tells us the shepherd of israel who spent hundreds perhaps thousands of nights all alone out under the very uh, bright stars of the middle east because they didn't have smog and you don't tend to have fog over there very much either he could see the stars sparkling night after night as a shepherd boy sleeping out all night with his sheep O Eternal, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You who set your glory above the heavens. He'd seen those heavens arching up above night after night and pondered on the greatness and power of the Creator. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, see as he looked up, he thought, how great God is. My wife and I have a magnificent, I just have to call it that, CD. I think I've described it before. I don't want to wear you out, but our former music teacher, Big Sandy Roger Bryant, is a big guy. He won't mind me describing that. He's about 6'2 and 260 or something like that, and he has a big diaphragm. A big opera singer needs, they call it the support. You know, you've got to have this full stomach and go, oh, 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 and really hold it, and he has that. He has a beautiful, gorgeous voice. And he has all the best songs, it seems like, in that particular CD. Uh, if with all your heart you seek him, you shall surely find him. The holy city, I'll walk with God, how great thou art, and on and on. Wow, I like to listen to that on the Sabbath. But anyway, God made those things and created that possibility. So he said, when I consider your fingers, the work, the moon and the stars you've made, what is man that you're mindful of him? and the Son of Man that you visit Him. Brethren, if you want to know and to love God, you need to get out under the stars yourself once in a while and think how great is God and how small we are. And really think about that. All of that out there in that vast universe did not happen, could not just happen. Those immutable laws throughout the whole universe, who knows about those laws? We'll go down to NASA in Houston. Go down to the NASA facilities in Florida. They know about it. They know those laws work. And if they don't obey those laws when they send these miss missiles or space missions, their, their rocket's going to crash or be lost in outer space. They know that. Those laws are absolute. Who created those laws? Did it just all happen? No, a great God created those laws. 
you've made him a little lower than the angels, man, or Elohim as it is, and it can be really translated God. God has made us temporarily less than he is. The implication doesn't make it real clear, but someday we will be like him, and you've crowned him with glory and honor in his plan and purpose. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. So God in his plan has given us everything, and we need to honor him and be very grateful. Say, Father in heaven, I'm not worthy of that. But thank you, Father in heaven, for this beautiful earth and the vast universe. Thank you, Father, for life, for giving us life as human beings and making us in your image. Thank you for giving us your son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile us to you. Thank you, Father, for your word that we can read and study and know your mind and your will and your plan. Thank you for your Holy Spirit to help us understand this word and live with this word. Thank you for your church, for bringing your church down through the ages to us today. I often am thankful for the church. And even though I'm temporarily, very temporarily from God's point of view, a human leader of one of the small branches of God's church today, I'm very thankful because I'm just a worm crawling around here on the earth and I'm here for a short time and then we'll all be gone just like a vapor that appears for a little while and then it's gone. And we all have to understand that. But God has brought his church down through the last 2,000 years to our age and here we are. And I say, Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for the love, the warmth, the encouragement, the fellowship, the balance, the teaching, the truth in your church. I sometimes mention all those things. We have the teaching and we have the balance, though, because we don't go off in odd things if we're in a right church where we have very fine men on our council of elders and I have a whole team of wonderful advisors to help me if I make a mistake and everything else. And God commands us in multitude of counsel, there is wisdom. And so we have balance and we have the teaching and we have the truth. And God has given us that truth, not because we're smart, but because of his mercy. He's given us that truth. So we must be thankful to God. And that's a tremendous thing. We need to know the God of the Bible. We need to know who the true God is. And as I said earlier, I won't turn to it, but in James chapter 1, verse 17, God is described as the giver of every good and every perfect gift. So now let's turn to John. That's James 1, 17. Now let's turn to John, if you would, chapter 14. John, in their New Testament, the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Jesus said here to his disciples in this final discourse he gave before he died, John thirteen thirty one through chapter 17 is all one part of went great long discourse. Some of the most deep and profound parts of the entire Bible are right here in these chapters, by the way. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. God's house? Well, most of you have been to Protestant or Catholic funerals, and you know they always interpret that as heaven. Who said that's heaven? All you need to know is look it up. How does God interpret it? Turn back to John 2, verse 16. He talks about his father's house. Don't make my father's house a house of merchandise and just ran these money changers out of the temple. Several times, Jesus identifies God's house as the temple. And they had various offices, places of authority, different degrees of responsibility that these occupants had in those various offices. Like in the White House, you might have the chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, 
and you might have, you know, some other big shots there. Maybe the Secretary of Defense might be there. Maybe the Secretary of Education and Welfare. I don't know where they're all, but they have big shots, some of them with offices right in the White House, and that particular office belongs to that man with that responsibility. In my father's house, the temple, are many different jobs. And if it were not so, I told you. I'm, I'm preparing a job for all of you. You're all going to be in God's house. You're going to be in God's kingdom. You're going to be in God's government over this earth. And you'll be king over five cities or ten cities or whatever with different types of responsibilities. And I go to prepare a place for you. He didn't say the place would be up in heaven. Never ever said that. A place is a job in an office in the, the temple denoting that job. And if I go and prepare a place or a position, a job, is what it really means, obviously, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. And where I go you know the way, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way. Now, brethren, when you think about God... You need to think of God the Father. He is the greatest. And Jesus said, as you know, my Father is greater than I. And he prayed to God the Father. But Jesus is also God, the very Son of God. He says, I am the way. He was not just some normal preacher down here saying, I'll tell you about this. He was the perfect representation of God. He was the total personification of God Emmanuel, God in the human flesh. I am the way. Everything he said, everything he thought, everything he did personified God. And if God the Father had come into the human flesh, he would have lived the same kind of life. If he'd had a different mother, he might have had a bigger nose or longer fingers or a higher voice or lower voice or whatever. We don't know the physical characteristics but that same basic approach to everything would have been the same. The stamped impress of the character of God. I am the way. I am the truth. He didn't just tell you about the truth. Everything I think and say and do represents the truth because that's the way it was. I am the life. What kind of life should you live? You look at the life of Jesus of Nazareth. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we make no apology. We don't try to get in people's face and get thrown off stations or make the Muslims mad at us to want to kill us. Although eventually some of them probably will try to kill some of us. I know that. And the God of the Bible is the only true God. There is no other. There is no other at all. And we need to really understand that. And Jesus perfectly represented God. So how can you know God? You can know God by drinking in and going over and over the statements of Jesus Christ. I could never have imagined the blessing that God gave me, and I didn't think about it that much at the time. And I'm not bragging because I didn't deserve it, and I was not the best one at doing it probably at all. But way back in 1953, God took, Mr. Armstrong, I mean, took all the Bible classes and gave them to Herman Hay and me. And from then on, he never taught any Bible class regularly. He'd just come in once or twice a semester or over in, or less later on after a few years, but over in England, why he would teach classes more often at times, but never regularly, of course, because he was only there maybe one-fourth of the year. So I had was given right away the freshman Bible class. And what was that? Every single year I had to go through all four Gospels, the Harmony of the Gospels and the Book of Acts, explaining and expounding and explaining and expounding. 
So I had the chance because it was pushed right in my face, you know, to get up in front of the freshman kids and make this plain. And looking back, that was a wonderful help to me to really know the mind of God and the mind and the attitude and the example of Jesus Christ because I had to teach that year after year after year for 35 or 36 years. Don't ever forget, you've got to read directly the words of Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you'd known me, you'd have known my Father. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. He didn't understand even then. The Holy Spirit was not yet given, so they didn't really get it. He said, show us the Father. Maybe he'll look bigger, more powerful or something, I guess Philip was thinking. Jesus said, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. God the Father would not be any different if he were here. Jesus was making that plain. As I've said, I'm sure Jesus would say, well, if, you know, if he'd had a different mother, maybe his, he would have been taller or shorter or some, you know, some tiny little physical characteristic somewhat different depending on the physical uh, heredity from his mother since God the Father impregnated a virgin to depend upon which, which woman he impregnated by the power of the Holy Spirit. But he who has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, he does the works. Yes, God the Father was totally dwelling in Christ. And when they saw Christ all day long, and when you read First, Second, and Third John, the epistles, you know, you can kind of get emotional. I do when I think about having been to Israel and I sort of picture a young man like Christ. I don't try to put a face on it, but he's going here and there and Peter and James and John are going with him and they're sleeping with him out under the stars at night. And there with the guy who never made a mistake. <laughs> and I'm sure Jesus kidded with them, you know, at times. He loved them and they were young men. He probably butted them with the elbow. How's it doing? You know, doubting Thomas. <laughs> he didn't probably call him doubting Thomas, but how's it doing? You know, Bartholomew and having a good day. How did that rock bother you last night where you were trying to sleep? Did the bedroll turn out okay? And they were kidding around, helping each other up and down the hills of Palestine and working together, serving, and he was teaching them the truth. He was perfect. He was perfect. He never made a mistake. So he was God. And as you read these things and picture these things and drink in, you can know God and how God really is and how God would live and act in the human flesh. And you can know that Jesus Christ was God, is God, because God is not a person. God is a family. And God was God the Father and then God the Son as well. So the first key to really be able to keep that great commandment is to know the true God. And the true God is Jesus Christ and God the Father. And the true God is the God of the Bible. He's the God of creation. And He is your Father, most of you. And when you get down on your knees and say, Our Father, who art in heaven, you should have great feeling and an awesome sense of appreciation that God has impregnated you. That is literal nature, as it says in 1 John 3, 9. The sperma, the literal seed of God is inside you through the Holy Spirit. You take on the divine nature to the degree that you walk with God. So know the God of the Bible and deeply appreciate that, that He is God. The second key to loving God with all your heart is the need for a great sense of awe and the fear of God 
a great sense of awe and the right fear of God. You might say, why are you being terrible? You have a fear religion. No, but frankly, our, our society has got away from that. Past ages may have had too much of that at times, but boy, we're leaving that out almost altogether. And unless you have that, you're not going to make it into God's kingdom. You've got to have a sense of awe. I was just turning the channel back and forth from KABT, uh, KBT, I guess, the radio station, to the NPR uh, today, uh, right at 1, I guess it was, and uh, to catch the news. And on the NPR, they didn't seem to have it at 1 o'clock. I'd forgotten that. And they had this crazy program coming on about someone kidding around about God and, and, uh, they, and a very, frankly, disrespectful, almost blasphemous way. They have these stupid people going on making fun of God. They will answer to God someday for that. They will be shaking, literally, if they live on into the day of the Lord. But I'm not looking forward to that for them. I don't know. Maybe they'll just go to sleep and they'll come up in the great white throne judgment. So in another sense, we need to love them. We'll be able to help them. Well, George, you know, you got all mixed up and made fun of God. But that was not the unpardonable sin. There's only one unpardonable sin, and that is to deliberately blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And most people don't even know what that is or how to do it. Fortunately, so we don't need to go worrying about that. If we're worrying about it, it probably means we haven't done it. But you need the right awe and fear of God. What am I talking about? I'm talking about this lackadaisical, smart aleck attitude people are developing in our society probably more than any time for hundreds of years. A general lack of respect for even the idea of God. And that carries over into a lack of respect for parents, a lack of respect for cool school teachers, a lack of respect for the governor, the mayor of the city, the president, whoever it is. Just a general lack of respect for authority. They've lost that. But the awe that they ought to have, especially for the great governor of the universe, is almost missing in most people, even church people. The father of the faithful had that. Let's turn back and just read a little bit. I won't read it all. I'll just tell you the story and mention a couple of verses. Genesis 22 talks about Abraham. Genesis chapter 22. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested. He was testing this man to see if he were fit to be that example and the father of the faithful. And he said, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Take your son, saddle up your donkey, go over to the top of this hill and offer him for a burnt offering. What God? What are you talking about? What God kind of God are you? Blah, blah, blah. You can hear it today coming out of people's mouths, even most church members. But you see, Abraham, and I've said before, if I heard a voice in the night, and I've my sons have all heard me say this, to say, go kill, you know, uh, as it, I used to say, Mike or Jim or David or John or one of my sons, uh, I would not rush down the hallway to, to try to kill them at all. I would say, well, God, if that's you, I need some proof. You've never talked to me before. I need to know and know that I know that this is God. So you better test the spirits. But the point is, Abraham had walked with God in a profound way already. There was no question in his mind who this powerful voice was speaking to him. This overwhelming presence. This was the God who set the sun and moon and stars in the sky. And he knew that and knew that he knew that. And so he saddled early in the morning. He immediately didn't argue with God. It says in the book of Hebrews, it tells us later, and Hebrews was inspired by that same God, that Abraham knew that God was able even to resurrect Isaac if in fact he went through with it. And he was willing to go through with it. 
And so he went out there and started, he built an altar, started to bound Isaac, started to sacrifice him. But verse 11, the angel of the eternal called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Now the word angel means messenger. This messenger was Christ, the God of the Old Testament, obviously, but the way this passage is worded, Christ spoke to him. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the ladder. Do anything to him. For now I know. This is the key. Does God know that about you? Now I know that you fear God. That you have a fantastic awe of God. You're not just smart like, well, I'm going to do what I want. Well, maybe God... No. You know there's a real God. And you know He's the God who controls the heavens and the earth. He's going to soon shake every mountain and every island out of His place. He's going to change the whole surface of the earth. You recognize the power and the greatness of that God and you stand in awe. And you say, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, Lord. So you've got to have that attitude someday. And you may not have it as much as Abraham did because you may not be the father of the faithful. (laughs) None of us will. But you'd better begin to have that to to a good degree more than most do. Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham found this ram and knew God had provided him as the offering. And so then God spoke to him the second time and said, verse 17, In blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand on the seashore. All the hundreds of millions of people in the United States and Britain and Canada and Australia and New Zealand, all the Israelite peoples on earth have come from that. And they shall possess the gates of their enemies. God promised that. Promised them the gate of their enemies. Other scriptures show it would be at the time of the end. And God has done that. But now because of our profound disobedience, He's beginning to take it away which he also predicted he would do, that he would break the pride of our power and bring us down and so on. I will give you this, and in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you obeyed my voice. So you've got to have an awe of God and be willing to obey God no matter what. That's part of obeying the great commandment to love God with all your heart and strength and mind with all of your being. Another scripture that ties in with this, of course, is back in Isaiah 66. Again, a very familiar scripture. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. Thus says the ever-living one, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the eternal But on this one, here's the key, on this one will I look, on him who has a poor and and is of a contrite spirit, someone who is really broken, and they're coming, say, Father, forgive me, help me, I need your help, and cries out to God in deep, profound humility, and who trembles at my word. Do you tremble at God's word, or have you been so overwhelmed by this stuff coming out from Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and all the other, the earlier Thomas Paines and all the doubters and atheists down through the ages saying, well, there is no God and the Bible is just a collection of Hebrew myths that you don't really believe the Bible. You need to prove it to yourself as I have done. And I've been in that knowledge for 60 years now. And I've never obeyed it perfectly, but I have tried. 
So you need to do it if you haven't done it. So you can have a poor and contrite spirit, a humble spirit before God and tremble at God's word. When you know God says something, you fear to go the other way. You really do. You fear to go the other way. I have had many temptations of many kinds. I remember Dr. Hay down in Mexico one time. Uh, we were in, uh, in Ensenada, Mexico, and we saw this uh, Mexican show down there, and they had these dancers uh, where they were nothing evil, just kind of a little bit more than he was used to, and he literally turned his chair the other way so he wouldn't see the pretty girls doing their dancing and wiggling their hips. They weren't naked or anything. And then several of us, Dick and Raymond Cole and... Uh, and I, I guess Owen Smith was there. Three or four of us were there in Dick's car. And the next morning in this little hotel, we woke up and, and we all slept in. And Herman was a farm boy and he grew up, got up with the chickens and he was already up and out hey, taking a walk. And he came running in. We said, Herman, what's wrong? Why are you running? And he said, well, I was down the street and this woman came up and almost dragged me into her house. And he said, the Bible says, flee fornication. So he fled. He got out of there. That's cute. But it's better to be that way than the other way, if you follow me. And uh, so we were a little naive in a way, but it's better to do that than something else. You need to fear God. You really do. To fear God and not go the wrong way. If God is real to you, that will give you a healthy fear of evil. All right, the second thing is the need for awe and the true fear of God. The third key to love God with all your heart is you've got to learn obedience and reverence for God's law. And that, as you know, we constantly talk about that, so I won't give you a dozen of scriptures on that, but just a couple here. And let me remind you, brethren, the Ten Commandments define who God is. The Ten Commandments define God's character. They show the very character of God. So you want to really be sure of that and think about those principles. Turn back now again to Psalms, Psalm 119, if you would. Turn to Psalm uh, 119. And here we find in Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the ever-living one. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. So we're to keep God's law, of course, with all our being. And God tells us that in various ways again and again. Turn over now then to verse 97 in this psalm. I'd like to read it all, but take just a couple sections. Psalm 119, verse 97. By the way, Psalm 119, for those of you who are new, this is the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, verse 97. The son of, I mean, the, the man after God's own heart wrote David, Oh, how I love your law. He loved the law of God. Why? Because the law of God tells us God's nature, His character, the way He wants us to be. How I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, do we think David was just trying to show off and say something he didn't really mean? I don't think so, brethren, as I've read the Bible and I see how God even made King David put in things about himself, about this adultery with Bathsheba and a lot of other things that were not very complimentary. I think David did love God's law. He got off track a couple times, but only for a few days or a few weeks at a time. He did not go off for very long 
and the incident with Bathsheba and Uriah was by far the worst thing he ever did. By far. And God tells you himself that only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite, this is a direct paraphrasing, only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite did David ever directly disobey what God had told him. I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. He thought on it all the time. Through you, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. So we need to really think about that, brethren, to meditate on God's law. David did it all day long. Think about this too. David obviously loved God with all of his heart because he loved God's law, and God loved David because God describes David as a man after his own heart. How can you be a man or woman after God's own heart? By loving God's law, loving God's law, and wanting it to rule your life. Now turn back to 1 John 2. Again, I could give you dozens and dozens of scriptures on all this, and I think you who've been here regularly, you know that. But anyway, let's turn to 1 John, if you would. 1 John chapter 2. Here the aged apostle John tells us at the end of his life, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, Now by this we know that we know Him, you see, we know God, if we keep His commandments. So he who says, I know God, and does not keep His commandments, plural, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, that is every word of God, obviously, truly the love of God. What is God's love? Well, it's all explained here. That's why you need to know the God of the Bible. Is perfected in him, and by this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him, if you abide in God or in Christ, ought himself to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. Here's John, the last apostle. They say, oh, now we're under the new covenant. All this old stuff is done away. No. He said, you go back to the old commandment. And he says, that's the word you heard from the beginning. Then you turn over to 1 John chapter 3. Chapter 3 now, verse 22. It says, and whatever we ask, we receive from him. Why? Because we're sincere, because we accept Jesus in a sentimental way, just the person of Jesus. No, God hears our prayers. Why? Because we keep His commandments, plural, and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. So we're to obey God. Then God will hear our prayers much more, much more often and more powerfully. Chapter 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For, get this, verse 3, this is the love of God. I'm telling you now how to love God. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, plural. And His commandments are not burdensome. It's not all that difficult or should not be to refrain from killing and stealing and lying and committing adultery and so forth. And some people say the Sabbath commandment is the hard one. They don't want to keep that. But I, of course, I was, I was spoiled. I know that. But for years and decades, I lived on one of the three campuses of Ambassador College, either in Pasadena or Brickett Wood or Big Sandy. And we're living in that atmosphere, frankly. And most of you have, can do it where you are too. But the, the Sabbath is the easiest commandment. Everybody's keeping it. And, and uh, you know what I mean. 
And so all you have to do is rest and, and sort of, certainly you want to worship God, but rest and go to church if you're not sick and for 24 hours. But for all the rest of the whole week, you're not to think about killing or hating others, you know, having any vindictive thoughts. You're not to lust and thinking of pretty girls or lust after other women if you're married. You're not to have other wrong thoughts about stealing or, or covetousness or lying or watering down the truth because God hates he that lies and loves a lie and this kind of thing. And all the other commandments, you've got to keep 24 hours all six days of the other days plus the Sabbath. But on the Sabbath, the only thing different is you get to rest. <laughs> that shouldn't be so hard. But some people think that's a burden. Anyway, that's interesting. So you know God by keeping His commandments. That's the way you show love to God, by showing Him you want to be like He is. You want to be like your Father. You want to honor your Father. You want to develop God's character. You want to have Christ live His life in you. And Jesus said back in John chapter 15, the Gospel of John chapter 15, verse 10, I have kept my Father's commandments. And Jesus will live His same life within us that He lived 1,900 years ago if we will yield to Him and serve Him. So that is the third key, obedience and a profound reverence for God's law. The fourth key to loving God is to give God thanks and worship. To give God thanks and worship and adoration, I can add. I think that's a good word to put in there. I was just writing this out quickly here. Turn back to Psalms again, but this time let's go to Psalm 18. Psalm 18 this time, brethren. And notice here what God says in Psalm 18. And there are many Psalms like this, and I would like to read for the next half hour out of the Psalms, except we wouldn't have time for the rest of the sermons. Because David, frankly, you know this, he continued just praised and worshiped and adored God over and over and over again. Why was he a man after God's own heart? Well, that was one of the big reasons. He has a deep sense of appreciation and a deep sense of awe of God's power and God's glory and adoration for God. He says in Psalm 18, verse 1, I will love you, O Eternal. Remember when a capital L-O-R-D means the ever-living one or the eternal in the Hebrew. I will love you, O Eternal, my strength. The eternal is my rock. Remember, Christ is our rock and fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the eternal who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. And so he goes on and describes God's power and how in verse 6, in distress I called upon God. He heard and my cry came before him even to his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. He stood in awe of that great God who shook the earth. The foundations of the hills were quaked and shaken because he was angry and smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire. Yes, some of this is picturesque, I know. But God is great. Verse 13, the eternal thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice. So he was in awe of God and how great God was. So anyway, he, he closes the psalm here in, in Psalm 46, verse 46. The eternal lives. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me above those who rise up against me. 
You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Eternal, among the Gentiles. I will sing praise to your name. Great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and to his descendants forevermore. So God goes on, or David goes on here, praising and praising God in psalm after psalm after psalm, how great God is, the magnificent creation of God, the power of God. And he exults in that because he adored God. Again, if you go out under the heavens and you think about things, you can learn to have that sense of God and God's power and God's glory. Brethren, some of you younger people, and I love you, one of the happiest times in my life, many of the happiest times in my life were teaching young people, and I'm so grateful I had that privilege for about 36 years. But the younger generation today is more caught off from God than any generation in human history. The devil is busier in general but one way the devil is messing up your minds is that you have television and you have the internet and the computers. And if you get into television and you punch a button, you can suddenly see all kinds of vile things on there. And if you punch a button or the right series of buttons on the internet, you can see even more vile things, as a lot of you know. Lesbianism, homosexuality, even bestiality. And believe me, the young men know which buttons to push, many of them, if they get into that. And they can play all these computer games by the hundreds of hours where strange creatures are blown up and blown up and blown up. And it's just crazy stuff. It, that becomes their world. And that world is not God's world. That world keeps them. If you follow, Satan is clever. He's not stupid. He's put in this stuff in their face. It's exciting to distract them from looking up to the heavens, from going out and among the trees from hearing the little rush of the brook and the little streams coming down out of the hills and thinking, this is beautiful. This is God's creation. From hearing the waves at Santa Monica Beach come crashing in and all the other things that you can say to go up in Northern California and see the, break, the waves breaking up at Point Lobos and those places where it comes crashing and you hear it like a thunder coming and you begin to think about God and you go over to Switzerland and... and uh, the area there I got to go to two or three times, Lugano and Lake Lugano, and you hear the thunder, and I had the most spectacular storm and thunder I've ever experienced in my life, and the thunder sounds, and then it goes boom, boom, boom all around the ring of mountains, and it was just majestic. And you begin to think about God when you see those things, or you should, but kids are seeing make-believe stuff. Kids are seeing these terrible computer games. They have their face in something that man has made. It's distracting very distracting from the God of creation, from the God of the Bible. Frankly, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but it may. I have here just a September issue of Richard Young's intelligence report. He's very respected. Tens or hundreds of thousands of people read his report. Many top executives get it. And so he said, 33 minutes to Armageddon. When you read, quote, the report of the commission to assess the threat to the United States from electromagnetic pulse attack, the MEP attack, electromagnetic attack, uh, there is reason for concern and is heightened by a recent fact that they began to realize it takes only 33 minutes for an ICBM to hit America from anywhere on earth. And we have today an administration committed to gutting America's missile defense on the heels of shamefully and wrongfully killing off America's only in production fifth generation fighter the F-22 and so on. 
he says at least nine countries have EMP knowledge, but it's not a specific country threat that most concerns me. Al-Qaeda is thought to control a small fleet of freighters, you know, sh ships that are out there hauling things. Uh, it would be a simple task to outfit a Caribbean-bound freighter with a short-range ballistic missile. A Scud missile would do the trick and would cost less than $100,000. A high-risk EMP attack could be carried out right under the nose of the U.S. Coast Guard. And what country would we attack in response? See, we wouldn't know. How could we respond? We wouldn't know where to fight back to. We, we wouldn't understand. The answer is scary. A high-altitude EMP attack could knock out our complete electronic infrastructure. An invisible radio frequency wave would be produced perhaps as much as a million times as strong as America's strongest radio signal. Computers, get this, guys, computers, cell phones, food, water, banking, transportation, and electric power, all our electricity would go off, would be just some of the services at risk. What if all electricity went off, all the food in your freezer was going to get too hot or too cold, and there was no enough stuff, and of course in the, in the freezer compartments in the stores, they wouldn't be able to store it either with no electricity, and you couldn't call anyone, electricity's gone, your computer would go out, and your TV would go out, you would sit in silence. That's what King David did. God's going to give a lot of you young people that opportunity. I think before it's all over, there'll be no TV, no computer. You'll just think, what's going on? You'll have to think there's a world out there, a real world. And someone made this world. And God's allowing these things to happen to our country for a particular reason. Because He is bringing about His great purpose. So we want to honor God and worship God and know that we should be thankful and praise God for the beautiful earth He's given us, for all the food that we eat. Psalm 95, let's stop by there a minute. <laughs> I'd like to read all the Psalms. Oh, come, let us sing to the Eternal. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to Him with psalms. For the Eternal is the great God and the great King above all gods. And describes in his hand of the deep places, the earth, the heights of the hills, the sea, everything he made. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the eternal, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hands. Yes, we are God's people. He is the great God. And when my wife and I hear this beautiful recording and Roger singing, how great thou art. <laughs> why? You think about it, it's like a sermon. You're hearing a whole sermon, every, every one of those songs. That is the God we worship, but God appreciates that attitude. How do you love God? If you can learn to study the Psalms, pray to God, say, God, thank you for life. Thank you for this new day. Thank you for the sun, the moon, and the stars. Thank you for guiding me all my life, for bringing me here, for giving me my mate, for giving me my food, my job, my everything I have. Thank you for the knowledge of the purpose you're working out so I'm not worried when I see these things happening that I know and I know and I understand. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Worship God, brethren. That is something God wants and that is something God deserves. So we need to have that attitude. Let's turn now to Ephesians 5 in your New Testament. Ephesians 5 at this point. And notice what God says here. 
And I used one of these scriptures a few weeks ago in a different way. Psalm, Ephesians 5, 15. See then that you walk circumspectly or carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time. Remember, brethren, in the psalm, I mean, the sermon a couple of weeks ago that I preached on redeeming the time and how you've got to, if you give your life to God, you need to give your time to God because your time is your life. To love God with all your heart and strength and mind, you will give your time to God. You will give your talents to God. You will give your energy to God. You will give everything you have to God. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Not wrong to drink wine, but don't be drunk with it. Speaking to one another, get this. This is the attitude God wants us to have. It may sound nicey-nice, but if you do it in the way King David did, it's wonderful. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always. That's what God wants. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Having that profound sense of worship and adoration to your Father in heaven, your Creator, your God, your Maker. So God wants that and He wants us to come before Him in that spirit, in that attitude of tremendous thankfulness and worship. Then the fifth key to loving God with all your heart is a total surrender and a total giving of your life to God. You need to practice a total surrender and a, a, a complete surrender and a gift of your life to God in a profound way. Notice back in Matthew, if you would at this point, uh, Matthew uh, chapter 10, brethren. Catch it here. Matthew 10 and I want to begin reading here in verse 38. Matthew 10, verse 38, Jesus said, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So you see, you've got to be willing to give your life to God even as a sacrifice. You love God so much, you know He gave you life that you want to give your life back to Him one way or the other as a dead sacrifice, as a martyr if need be, or as a living sacrifice. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. There's a right balance in there, brethren, and none of us get that balance perfectly, and I know I don't. I had a, an evangelist that I'd known for years. He's not with us, but he said, Rod, he said, you need to get a hobby, and you just think about one thing all the time, and you can't just think about the work all the time. And, uh, and he wanted me to get a stamp collection like he had or something like that. Well, I didn't seem to have any interest in that. But at any rate, we do need a hobby. I got to think, well, I do have some hobbies, and, and uh, I'd love to, to uh, travel. And I don't get to do that as much since my stroke. I love to see new things in cities. I love to hike out in the hills and see the great beauty of God and things like that. And I love to read, even apart from the Bible, biographies and autobiographies and inspirational things. And I love beautiful music and so on. So some of those things can be hobbies to a certain degree. But if you try to find your life where you want to make sure you have enough money, you have enough fun, you're getting to do this, and you, 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 me, 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 that's not what Christ had in mind. If Christ had thought, me, 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 
we'd be in trouble. <laughs> I would be in trouble because I'm a sinner. And Christ would not have been here to pay for my sins. And I'd be in big trouble. And so would you. So he was willing to empty himself from being very God, surrounded by four living creatures, the 24 elders who bowed down saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and hundreds of millions of angels. He was willing to give that up to come down here into the human flesh and die for you and die for me to give. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes on Him will not perish but have eternal life. He gave. Christ gives. So you see, you've got to be willing to be a giver and to give your life to God, a constant giving of your life to God, being willing to give your life as a dead sacrifice, as I've had to be willing to do on a number of occasions on the early baptizing tours and other things where we knew we might and we often would pray, pulling up to some country place, what, what kind of gun are they going to have here, this or that, and, or other situations, or give your life more likely as a, as a living sacrifice. Back in Romans, and again, I used this scripture recently, but it's still there, I notice. I don't tear them out when I use them. <laughs> Romans, Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul was inspired to tell us, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. The Greek can be translated lively. In other words, an energetic sacrifice. God tells the Laodiceans, He said, you're because you're neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. He wants a lively sacrifice, for we're on fire for God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or your intelligent service. It's not intelligent to offer animals anymore, but to give of yourself to God, to make a total surrender of yourself to God, that is the ultimate act of love. God so loved us that He came in the form of Christ and gave His life for us. If we come to our Creator and our Father and literally intend to give our lives to Him, that's the ultimate way we show love to God. And we've got to have that kind of attitude, brethren. We really do. We really do. And we've got to put our faith and trust in God and know that He is there and He will take care of us no matter what. Many other things could be brought in. But that attitude must be there to give your life as a living sacrifice to God. So I hope you can learn to do that and do that day by day and year by year. Remember, in your own mind and heart, you ought to try to think in this way and go over this sometime, if you would, and hope some of you, if you're taking notes, could get this down. You ought to learn as best you can with God's help to think like God thinks. You know, God tells us, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, verse 5. Try to think like God thinks. Also, feel like God feels. You need to feel what God feels. If it hurts God, it should hurt you. If it rejoices God, it should rejoice you. Think like God thinks. Feel like God feels. And want what God wants. As I told you, I'm not trying to make you feel sorry for me because I may live on, in fact, I'm hoping I will, another 10 or 15 years. But once you've had a stroke or two, I think I had one many stroke later, you know, well, you might die in 10 or 15 minutes. It might be 10 or 15 years. You don't know, but it helps you think very deeply <laughs> about that. 
but I want what God wants overall. And I've told my wife that. It really, uh, He's given me a long life already. And I've told you, it's too late for me to die young. I can't die young. <laughs> so I've already had a long life. So, but anyway, even though you're younger, some of you people, you better get that attitude while you can. Want what God wants. And if God wants you to use you more in His service in whatever way, if God wants you to be just a normal member or you could be just a deacon the rest of your life and not an elder, be happy with that or a deaconess. Just serving, giving, helping. That's what Christ did. And not be pushing for more all the time. Or if God wants you to do this or do that, whatever it is, be willing to do it, to worship God to think like God thinks, to read this Bible. What? How can I best serve my Creator the way I am right here? And put your faith and trust in God and have that attitude. Back in Luke now, chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Let's turn there, brethren. Here is the end of Christ's life. And as you know, he was about to be killed the next day. And so that evening before, they'd had the Passover. And in Luke 22, verse 39, And coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives. His disciples followed. He came to the place. He said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. So he went over here 50 or 60 yards, so he wasn't just praying right there, but behind a big bush or something and knelt down. Other scriptures show he prostrated himself and often he did that. He'd get right down on his face to pray to God. That's another aspect of worshiping God. I think in our day we think, well, we, we won't do that. We're too important and we may have on a nice suit or whatever it is. We better learn when we're in bad trouble to get right on our face. I know I was sent into exile in Hawaii back in 1979 and I thought I'd be back in a few weeks and months went by and more months by and more months went by and I wasn't sure like I'd ever get back and I thought I remember I think those guys I knew who they were were plotting back there hoping I would never come back and finally I began to fast not just once a month but two or three times a month and at the end I was fasting once a week and I would get really on my face, on the carpet there at least, I wasn't on the dirt, on my face, and beg God, and within 10 days or two weeks after I began to do that, I got this special delivery certified letter from Mr. Armstrong saying, come on back and teach the Bible. <laughs> right out of the blue. I hadn't written anything to Mr. Armstrong. I hadn't called him. I just talked to God, and he sent me that letter. But it was a lesson to me. And whenever I have cried out to God that hard and that way, I sense that God is there and things start to happen. You need to humble yourself before the great God of the universe. Don't feel that you're important. I'm sorry, you're not. I'm not important. Nobody's important. Every human being. The President of the United States is not important. You think about John Kennedy and how everything worships him. Here's the President of the United States had all this power a vibrant young commander-in-chief of the greatest military power on earth as we still were, and he rides along in this wonderful, powerful limousine in Dallas, Texas, and some little skinny guy from this window up there, pow! And he's gone. His blood drains out. He is gone. He wasn't that powerful. Oh, that's the way all of us are. Our life can end so suddenly. 
So we need to realize in Him we live and move and have our being. God is our Father. He will never leave us nor forsake us. But He wants us to worship Him, to get down on our face, to know how great He is and have a sense of total submission to God. Total surrender and total submission. And so Jesus came here at the end of His life. He who had been very God, with God from eternity, and He prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He didn't say, I deserve this. I need your resurrection. I need your intervention. Why would you do this to me? Not a word. Not my will, but yours be done. A sense of total submission to the Father. And God wants you and me to have that sense of total submission. That is totally worshiping God. That is totally loving God. That is keeping the first commandment. So all these five points are telling us how to keep the first commandment. I'll review them quickly, but please remember to put them into your life and you will be very blessed if you do. Remember, come to know, seek God, come to know the true God, the creator, the giver, and the God of the Bible so you know what God you're talking about. Secondly, you need to develop an awe and a genuine fear of God, the great sense of awe and fear, godly reverence for the Creator. Thirdly, build through His Spirit obedience and profound reverence for God's law because that's the basis of God's character. Fourthly, give God thanks and worship and adoration. Lift your eyes up to the heavens and talk about God's glory and power and every good and every perfect gift. And the fifth key to loving God and to keeping the first commandment to love God with all your heart and strength and mind is a total surrender and a total gift of your life to God. So practice those things and God will be with you and you will be able to walk with God more profoundly than you ever have before.